are going to be looking at the story of Jesus feeding a multitude this morning. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. If you want to use a pew Bible, you can find it on page 1565. 1565. Mark 8, 1 through 21. Mark 8, 1 through 21, here then the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word this morning. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, "'Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign?' I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are grateful for Your Word, and we are grateful for the power uh, that is contained in Your Word. And Father, we know that it is by Your Word that You do Your work in the life of Your church. It is by Your Word that You, that you build Your church and that You call sinners to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that Your Word would prove powerful again this morning. We pray that You would give us ears that hear and eyes that see and hearts that are able to understand and believe the good news and to respond accordingly. Lord, be with me as I preach. Help me to do this well, and each of us as we listen, help us to listen well too. For Jesus' sake, amen. The, uh, the title of the sermon this morning is 
Jesus feeds the multitude again. And of course, that title implies that uh, Jesus has done something like this before, right? Of course, He has. In Mark 6, 30 through 44, we read a story that is, that is very similar to this one. In fact, the two stories are so similar that many critical scholars, these are people who really make their living trying to undermine and disprove Scripture. They've said, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a different story or a separate event. No, it's, it's the same story that Mark has for whatever reason, maybe even by mistake, told us again. And, you know, he's changed some of the details and told it differently. And that proves that none of this is, none of this is true. Now, to be clear, there are, there are similarities between Jesus' feeding of the multitude in Mark 6 and and his feeding of the multitude here in Mark 8. For instance, both stories, they take place in a uh, deserted or remote setting. And both stories emphasize Jesus' compassion on the crowd. Uh, Both stories, Jesus asks his disciples how many loaves they have. And both stories, the people are told to sit down. In both stories, Jesus gives thanks to God before distributing the bread to the people. In both stories, the people eat and are satisfied, and in both stories, there are leftovers. So, there are, there are many similarities between the two stories, but we ought not discount the differences, right? Because there are differences as well. For instance, the amount of people is different. In Mark 6, Jesus feeds 5,000. And the way that that's written in the Greek suggests he fed 5,000 men and that women and children were probably there in addition to that number. So 5,000 plus. In Mark 8, Jesus feeds 4,000. And the way that's written in Greek indicates that 4,000 was was the total number of people present. Notice too, the original amount of bread and fish is different. In Mark 6, Jesus uses five loaves and two fish. In Mark 8 now, he uses seven loaves and a few fish. Also, the leftovers are different, aren't they? In in Mark 6, there are 12 basketfuls left over. Here in Mark 8, there are seven basketfuls left over. So, there are similarities between the two stories, but, but there are also differences, right, that we have to account for. Now, the real kicker, the coup de grace on the argument, if you will, is what Jesus says in Mark 8, verses 19 and 20. Because there, Jesus refers to both the first feeding of the 5,000 and the second feeding of the 4,000, making it clear to all of us that on on one occasion, Jesus fed 5,000, and on another occasion, Jesus fed 4,000. So the stories are similar, yes, but Scripture leaves us with no doubt that on two separate occasions, Jesus fed a multitude of people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And the theological significance of these two feedings, you might say, well, why, why, why did you need to do this twice? Why do we need to tell this twice? Aren't the lessons the same? Well, the theological sig- significance of these two feedings is found in the setting of each one. The first feeding of the 5,000 takes place on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, probably around Capernaum, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, 
And what that means is that the multitude Jesus fed on that day, it would have been primarily, if not entirely, Jewish. This second feeding of the 4,000 takes place on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Take a look at the first three words of our text, during those days. What days is Mark referring to here? Well, he's referring to the days that he's previously spoken about in chapter 7, verse 31. Chapter 7, verse 31, we read, When Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. Okay, those are the days that Mark is referring to. And remember what we learned about this region of the Decapolis. This is important. It was primarily a Gentile region. And the Gentile nature of this multitude in Mark 8 is clear when you, when you realize that the words Mark uses for fish and basket in Greek are different than the words he uses for fish and basket in chapter 6. Okay, in Mark 8, Mark uses words for fish and basket that were familiar especially to the region of the Decapolis. And they're words that carried with them uh, Gentile connotations. Okay, so this, the emphasis of this second feeding miracle, it's on Jesus feeding the Gentiles. And when you, when you put these two feeding miracles together then, the, the 5,000 in Mark 6, the 4,000 here in Mark 8, the point being made is that Jesus satisfies the needs physical and spiritual, as Alex indicated, of both Jew and Gentile. Now, that's a point we often take for granted today, right? That God's mercy towards sinners in Christ extends beyond the lost sheep of Israel, beyond the Jews, right? We're, we take that for granted. But that was, that was big news in the first century. And that was big news in the days after Pentecost. Remember Peter, Acts 10, he's at Cornelius' house. Now I see that the Spirit is for the Gentiles as well. That was big news. And in Jesus' actions here, in our text this morning in Mark 8, he, he's announcing really this, this worldwide scope of his salvation. He's announcing the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's great plan of redemption. Now, our text, that, that kind of just sets the, the background. That's not really the sermon, but it sort of sets the background, maybe helps you understand uh, these two feedings. I think that's important to get because they does kind of raise a lot of questions when you read the first one, then you read the second one. Our text contains more than just the, the feeding of the 4,000, of course. It contains uh, a run-in that Jesus has with the Pharisees as well as a, a conversation that takes place on the boat on the Sea of Galilee uh, between Jesus and his disciples. And the common thread, really, or theme that ties these three stories together is, uh, is the theme of trust. Okay, in verses 1 through 10, we see Jesus' compassion towards those who trust him. In verses 11 through 13, we see him leave those who refuse to trust him. And then in verses 14 through 21, we see him admonish those who ought to trust him. So the common theme here is trust. Notice with me first, Jesus' compassion towards those who trust him. Verses 1 through 10, here he feeds the 4,000. We read the story together, but I want you to notice specifically what we read in verses 1 through 3, okay? During those days, another large crowd gathered, 
Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. So who are these people whom Jesus extends his compassion to in the feeding of the 4,000? Well, they are people who Mark tells us have been with him for three days. That's another difference between this story and the one in Mark 6. In Mark 6, those people have been with Jesus one day. These people have been with Jesus three days. And Jesus makes it clear that some of these people, they've come a long way to be with him. Many These people didn't just come because, hey, Jesus was in town. Let's go see this thing that's happening. No, these people, they went out of their way to, to see Jesus and to be with Jesus. They come a long way, Jesus says. I think it's also worth noticing that these people don't seem to have any intention of leaving unless Jesus sends them home, right? So these people whom Jesus has compassion on here, these are people committed to him, at least in this moment. These are, these are people who have been put in this predicament of being hungry and of having no food precisely because they've followed Jesus and refused to leave Jesus. And, and you know, when Jesus has compassion on these people and when he, when he powerfully satisfies their hunger, we're seeing something of the truth of Psalm 34 verse 10. This is what Psalm 34.10 says, the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Let me ask you, what keeps you or me or any one of us from living a life of deep trust and devotion towards the Lord Jesus Christ? What keeps us from from living lives that one might say, he or she is sold out for Christ? Well, I don't think we can reduce that to one answer, but certainly this would be included in that answer. I think that what keeps many of us from living a life of of devotion and deep trust with the Lord Jesus Christ is 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 because we're afraid that if we do so, we'll miss out on something or we'll, we'll lack something. For instance, we might not spend any significant time during the day reading God's Word and praying because, well, we just don't have time, right? There's too much to do. And you know, if I, if I take time to do that, well, then I won't get all this other stuff done that I have to do. I know how you think because I think the same way. I fight the same temptation. But here's what we have to see and believe now. Jesus takes compassion on those committed to him. And those who commit a portion of their day specifically to him, they won't regret it. In fact, I think you'll be surprised, as I've been in my own life, as how the Lord takes compassion on your schedule and enables you to still get done the things you need to get done. Who would have thought? I've found I feel that i got to write a couple sermons for Sunday. And on a week when I neglect prayer and devotion, it takes me forever to write those sermons. And a week when I am diligent in my devotional life, you'd, amaze, you'd be amazed at how efficient I am. There's time to spare. It's a strange phenomenon. 
Martin Luther used to pray two hours a day. Brother Luther, how do you have time to pray two hours a day, you crazy man? How can I not? Right? Luther knew this principle. Everything else just sort of falls into place. The Lord takes compassion on those who are committed to him. In light of some conversations we've had in council recently, I probably need to apply this truth to our money. As a council, we've become aware of and concerned by the fact that perhaps many in this congregation don't make regular disciplined giving a part of their Christian practice, right? Regular disciplined weekly giving. Like many of us we don't do it. We haven't been taught to do it or whatever. I don't know why, but we don't, we don't do it. And we think this is a problem as elders and deacons. And it's a problem, first off, because, well, the Bible calls us, doesn't it, to give the first fruits of our wealth to God and to set the first fruits aside for Him. And, and if I might borrow the language of, uh, of Malachi, to not do this is to rob God. That's a serious accusation. Another reason this concerns us is because the Bible's clear that there is, a, there is a very close relationship between the priorities of our heart and our money and what we do with our money and how we spend our money. Right? Jesus says, there's other examples, but Jesus says quite plainly, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so although we can never know what's in a person's heart, those who those who give to the work of God's kingdom, and especially those who give generously, those who give in a sacrificial manner, well, they, they sure make it seem like their love and their trust is in the Lord above all, right? And those who don't, well, as elders and deacons, we can't help but wonder if it reveals a heart that trusts more in money and in wealth and possessions than in Christ. As elders and deacons, we don't want that. We want our hearts, all of our hearts to trust in Christ above all. That's where the Bible calls us to go. Anyway, what is it that keeps us from, from many of us from giving regularly to the work of God's kingdom? Well, I think for many of us it's fear. Fear that I, I don't have enough to give. It's the fear that if I, if I give weekly to the church a, a set amount, I'm going to run out. But hear me clearly again. The principle applies the Lord takes compassion on those committed to Him. And I have little doubt from my own experience, and as many others can testify to as well, that when you commit your money to the Lord, and the first way to do this is through giving to your local congregation, not the only way, but the first way, when you commit your money to the Lord, Jesus will take compassion on your finances. I'm not saying he'll make you rich. I'm not saying he'll make you independently wealthy. Right? I'm not saying he's done that for me. I'm not going to promise you something the Bible doesn't say. But without a doubt, I can stand before you this morning and say, yes, the Lord has had compassion on my own finances. And I know from talking to others of you as well that you'd say the same thing. He said, compassion on your finances. You give, you give, you give, you turn around. Where did that come from? So you keep giving. Our Lord takes compassion on those who trust him, who commit themselves to him. We might put it this way. The Lord Jesus Christ is not cold and indifferent to the cost of discipleship on the lives of his people. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not cold and indifferent to the cost of discipleship on the lives of his people. Matthew Henry says, as Christ has a compassion for all that are in wants and straits, so has he a special concern 
for those that are reduced to straits by their zeal and diligence and attending on him. Carly, now I know why you love Matthew Henry. No one can put it quite like him, right? As he has concern for all who have special need, so does he have special concern for those who have special need because of their zeal and their diligence in attending on him. If the fear of missing out on or not having something is keeping you from living a life sold out for Christ, devoted passionately to Christ, look what he did for these 4,000 people who followed him till the food ran out. They went home full. That's the one we're called to serve. Notice with me, second, Jesus leaves those who refuse to trust in him. He he leaves those who refuse to trust in him. We see this in verses 11 through 13. Jesus feeds the 4,000. He and the disciples get on a boat. They sail to a place called Delmanutha. Scholars aren't exactly sure where Delmanutha is, but because of the presence of the Pharisees in this place, it's likely on the predominantly western Jewish shore, predominantly Jewish western shore of the Sea of Galilee. The Pharisees probably wouldn't have been hanging out amongst the unclean Gentiles in the Decapolis. Anyway, Jesus and his disciples, they land in Delmanutha. Here comes the Pharisees. They begin to question Jesus. And the word question is a soft translation of the Greek word there. It's more accurately translated argue. They come to Jesus. They begin to argue with him. They've got an agenda. They're looking for a fight. And Mark tells us that to test him, they ask for a sign this time. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's multiplied bread. He's driven out demons. I mean, come on, right? But remember, the Pharisees, they thought that he did it all by the power of Beelzebub. And what they're asking for here is a sign that proves that Jesus is the Messiah. They say, we want a sign that proves you're from God, that your power is from heaven. I think we all know there is nothing Jesus could have done to change these guys' minds, right? Their minds were made up. They're not hanging in the balance here. Their minds are made up. They know what they think of Jesus. And Jesus says, no. No sign will be given, right? We're crying out loud. I've given ample evidence of who I am. If you don't trust me by now, you never will. No sign will be given. And then look what we read in verse 13. Then he left them. When I study during the week, usually often what comes out on Sunday, not always, but often are phrases that sort of jump off the page at me when I read the text for the first time. This is one of those phrases, last week it was he has done everything well, this week it's then he left them. Those are haunting words, aren't they? Is there anything more frightening in all the world than having the Lord of heaven and earth turn his back on you and sail away? That's what Jesus does here. He departs from the defiant. And you know, there are many in our world today who adopt the same defiant posture of the Pharisees. We've met people determined just to argue with the Lord Jesus, and they, sort of, they argue with us. They really want to argue with him, but they argue with us instead. Just out to prove it all wrong. They're so difficult. Some years ago, Robert De Niro, the actor, was doing an interview on television, and the interviewer asked him, hey, at the end of your days, when you stand before God, what are you going to say to him? He said, what I'm going to say to God is you have a lot of explaining to do. (laughs) Boy, that's going to be a wake-up. There's only one person who's going to be explaining on that day. Many live with that attitude, don't they? 
kind of put themselves above God. God's got it all wrong. If I was God, I wouldn't act like this. Show me, prove it. It's a dangerous attitude to live with. And these are just the people that our Lord Jesus will eventually depart from. If not in this life, then certainly on the day of judgment. His patience, he's incredibly patient, but none of us can take his patience for granted. Eventually he'll turn his back and sail away from all who persist in their defiance. And when he does, you're going to regret it and you're going to realize that it's too late. That's why the scripture says today, today, if you hear his voice, if you feel even the slightest inclination in your soul to confess your sins and respond to his grace and mercy in the gospel, do not harden your heart. Do not persist in your defiance. No, let your guard down. Humble yourself before Christ. Believe on his name before it's too late. And he leaves you to your unbelief as he did these Pharisees on the shore of Galilee long ago. Notice with me, third, Jesus is admonishing those who ought to trust in him. Verse 14 picks up on a conversation that seemingly took place on the boat, on the Sea of Galilee, after this run-in with the Pharisees. You get the sense here that, that Jesus and his disciples, they're sailing across the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is he's musing in his mind over this little episode in Dalmanutha with the Pharisees. And in light of this episode, he, he's going to take the moment and opportunity to teach his disciples. And so he gives this warning in verse 15. It seems like it comes out of the blue, doesn't it? He says, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, in Scripture, yeast is generally a metaphor for a pervasive, corrupting influence. It's often used as a metaphor for sin. Uh, certainly, that's Jesus is thinking along those lines here. He's saying, watch out for that corrupting influence of the Pharisees and of Herod. Watch out for this, this attitude of people who refuse to believe in me and who adopt a prove-it attitude, an argumentative attitude in the face of me. Jesus saying, just, just watch out for that attitude that defines these people. Even in another place, Herod is said to want to see amazing sign from Christ. And Jesus is just saying, watch out for this attitude of unbelief, really. Watch out for this attitude of unbelief. But the disciples don't get it, do they? As Mark tells us in verse 14, they'd forgotten to bring bread into the boat with them. And because of this, all they had was one loaf. And it's quite clear that this problem was on the disciples' minds as they sailed across the Sea of Galilee. Because as Jesus issues his warning here, the disciples hear only one word of what Jesus says. Yeast. Yeast. That's the only word the disciples hear. They're like the child who steals a cookie from the cookie jar in the afternoon without mom's permission and is so racked with guilt that when his mom says after dinner, you may get a cookie from the cookie jar, he starts crying and apologizing for what he did. Here's one word, cookie. That's kind of what the disciples are like here. Jesus says one thing, they hear one word and understand it as something else entirely. And you can almost see the finger pointing on the boat. I, in fact, I can imagine Jesus saying, watch out for the yeast, and Peter, you know, hitting James. I told you to bring the bread, man. 
I thought Thaddeus took it. I never said no such thing. I mean, you can sort of imagine that, right? I try to get Thaddeus in wherever I can. I don't get a lot of options. You can almost see that on the boat, right? Just the disciple. I told you to bring bread, man. I thought you heard it. Well, Jesus is mystified. If he could be mystified, he's mystified here. He says, why in the world are you talking about having no bread? What is wrong with you? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts that hard? Are your eyes that blind? Are your ears that deaf? Don't you remember? The 5,000. How many were... They all ate, how much is left over? 12, yeah, we got that. The 4,000, we, ju- we just saw it, right? Like six verses ago, we just saw it. He wouldn't, oh, it's not how they would have counted time, but you get it, right? We just saw it, guys. How many were left? Yeah, seven baskets, yeah, okay. Do you still not understand? Jesus is exasperated. He wonders how in the world these guys can't get, in light of all they've seen and experienced, that there is nothing to be concerned about ever when you're with Jesus so far as bread is concerned. That is one problem you don't have right now, is a bread problem. If I'm on the boat. Jesus admonishes those who ought to trust him. The disciples should know better, right? They should know better. Now it is easy for us to be critical of the disciples here. But let's be honest. We're not all that different. Maybe some of us this morning, especially those of us who've been Christians for any length of time, maybe, maybe we need to hear Jesus admonishing us this morning with these words. But for many of us today, as we sit here this morning, we're, we're overwhelmed by the cares of this world, by the problems that are in front of us. We're worried sick about our health. Worried about our children, worried about our finances, worried about our farm, worried about all sorts of things. And these things, that they keep us awake at night, and they make us afraid, and they challenge our faith. And now Jesus, he comes to us through his word. He comes to us, and he admonishes us as only he can. And he says to you this morning, hey, loved one, loved one, do you, do you still not see or understand? Think, think about what you've gone through. Think about what you've seen thus far in your life of my goodness and mercy and power. Don't you remember that time I answered that prayer? Don't you remember how I, how I provided for your family in that time of need? Don't you remember how I opened that door? Don't you remember how I made a way when there wasn't? For crying out loud, don't you remember the cross? Don't you remember how I redeemed you? Don't you remember how I bore your sins in my body on the tree? Don't you remember how I provided a righteousness that wasn't your own? Don't you remember? I haven't brought you this far to leave you hanging out to dry now. Some of us this morning, we need to hear this rebuke. Because we wallow in worry and we wallow in despair. And Jesus is saying, hey, grace for the present is found in recalling my mercy to you in the past. Grace for the present is found in recalling my mercy for you in the past. Whenever I go through a hard time in ministry, feel my faith being challenged, start to question it all, 
I always remember, always, how God got me here in the first place and how he opened doors and how he made it overwhelmingly clear to me that this is the direction he wanted me to go. He left me with little doubt at the time about the path I ought to take. And I cannot tell you on how many occasions I have taken great... And so let us understand today that one of the the best things we can do as Christians, what the disciples failed to do in this instance, is remember God's mercies in the past. One One of the best things we can do as Christians to fuel our faith in the here and now is recount those instances of God's faithfulness in our lives. So the the thread that ties these episodes together is trust. To those of us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ today or striving in every way to commit our lives to Him, we need to be encouraged to know that He is not indifferent to the cost of discipleship on our lives. He has compassion on those who are committed to Him. And who have forfeited worldly comforts in an effort to honor him and be near to him and bring glory to his name. And those of us this morning who are, who are refusing to trust in Christ. To those of us today who just go on living in defiance. Well, be warned. The Lord Jesus will not put up with you forever. Eventually, he will turn his back and leave, and then it will be too late. So heed the warning of the text and respond now to his grace and his mercy by repenting of your sins and surrendering your life to him. And those of us who ought to be trusting Christ today, but are finding it terribly difficult for one reason or another, will be admonished. For he who has been faithful thus far, assures you that he will not disappoint. He will continue to watch over you. He will continue to provide for you. He will continue to meet all your needs, both physical and spiritual. As the hymn writer said, His grace has brought you safe thus far. His grace will lead you home. Don't you understand? Don't you understand? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement, the warnings, the rebukes set before us in your word. All of these things are meant to help us know you and love you and serve you more. And so, Lord, we pray that you would apply these things to our heart this morning as you see fit. Help each of us to take that part of this text which spoke to us, or maybe multiple parts, and apply them accordingly. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, why don't you stand for the parting blessing, and then we'll sing our closing song together, and again, we'll try to be to Roosevelt's Pond by about 11.30. So, brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen.